CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal and on www.ckut.ca on the World Wide Web. News, interviews, and music featuring the voices of prisoners, their allies, and supporters. Tune in to the Prison Radio Show on the fourth Friday of every month between 11 a.m. and noon, and every second Thursday of the month between 5 and 6 p.m. To get involved in Prison Radio, or if you need to access past programs, email prison at ckut.ca. job, Harvey, to give a man back the dignity he once had. Your only interest is in how he behaves. You'll conform to our ideas of how you should behave. I am not a number. I am a free man. You were a number. You weren't a man. You wanted to get you. I wasn't Jim Crow. And hell, I was number 586. Why do you do a warder's job? It's a good job. Responsible job. Uh, officers like myself trying to... Scum. We're only enforcing the law. Oh, the law. The law. When they hang my husband, is that just? Good morning and welcome to the Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM. My name is Gene. My name is Noah. And we'll be your hosts for today. We at Prison Radio acknowledge that CKUT is located on unceded Odinshani Anishabeg. Abenaki. <laughs> you want to say this? Yeah. And Kenyan Kiaka Mohawk Territories. Sorry for the pronunciation. Uh, on today's show, we'll be airing an interview with Dr. Karen Gedney, who is an internal medicine special who spent almost 30 years treating prisoners as a prison physician. Dr. Gedney recently wrote a book called 30 Years Behind Bars Trials of a Prison Doctor. But first, here are some headlines. Mujahid Farid, a leading organizer in the push to release elderly people from prison, has passed away from cancer. He died Tuesday at home, surrounded by friends and family. Farid founded the campaign Release Aging People in Prison, known as RAAP, or RAP, when he was released from prison in 2011 after serving 33 years on a 15-to-life sentence. In a 2016 interview, he interviewed RAP's, he described RAP's message, quote, if the risk is low, let them go. South of the colonial Quebec border, a major new federal lawsuit claims that immigration agents are targeting undocumented organizers for their activism in Vermont. The suit accuses Immigration and Customs Enforcement, the Department of Homeland Security, and the Vermont Department of Motor Vehicles of carrying out a multi-year campaign of political retaliation against members of the group Migrant Justice. According to the lawsuit, Migrant Justice was infiltrated by an informant and its members were repeatedly subjected to electronic surveillance. At least 20 active members of Migrant Justice have been arrested and detained by JFC. The Trump administration said it would begin withdrawing thousands of soldiers it mobilized to the border ahead of the midterm elections after a federal judge halted the Trump administration's plans to bar migrants from seeking asylum unless they arrive at a legal U.S. port of entry. Following that ruling, 29 migrant families will be released from the South Texas Family Residential Center in Dilly. Many of them come from a region of Central America known as the Northern Triangle, encompassing El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. 
In a statement, Amnesty International welcomed the releases as a positive step, but blasted the Trump administration over its policy towards migrants, writing, quote, It is unconscionable to criminalize mothers, fathers, and children who have lost everything. The administration must immediately abandon plans to build more detention centers and tent cities. Construction has almost begun on a new migrant prison in Laval, Quebec. The ground has been remediated, and the next stop is paring concrete and laying the foundation. The federal government made the announcement to build a new immigration center, detention center, in 2016 and is hoping to increase the numbers of deportees by 30% in the coming year. Meanwhile, the CAQ is continuing to promote and implement anti-immigrant anti and Islamophobic policies. An organizing meeting to stop the prison took place this past Saturday in so-called Montreal. The prison is anticipated to hold up to 158 undocumented migrants and is slated to open in 2021. While the Liberal government is attempting to spin this project as a more humane way to detain migrants, organized see the prison as part of a violent system of imprisonment and deportation, a system that keeps people locked in cages while tearing apart families and communities. For a world without prisons of colonial borders, a world where people, not states, can decide how they move and where they can stay, visit Stop Pond Slap Prison. Info, dot info for more information and stop the construction of the Laval Immigration Detention Center. The time is presently 11.06 a.m. and you're listening to the Prison Radio Show here on CKUT 90.3 FM, 91.7 on cable and www.ckut.ca. Up next, we have an interview with Dr. Karen Gedney. Heads up, we wanted to share a content warning. The interview talks about rape and sexual assault. Today, we have as our featured speaker, Dr. Karen Gedney. She will share her life experience working in a medium security prison for men in the state of Nevada. She is an author, speaker, mentor, as well as board certified in internal medicine, anti-aging, and regenerative medicine. Recognized both the medical and correctional fields, Dr. Gedney also won the Nevada Heroes for Humanity Award. Her memoir, 30 Years Behind Bars, Trials of a Prison Doctor is her first debut as an author. Dr. Gedney, thank you for coming to the Prison Radio Show to share with us your amazing and unique story being a doctor in an all-male state prison. And thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. Oh, no problem. We're, ha we're happy to have you. Okay, your memoir, 30 Years Behind Bars, Trials of a Prison Doctor, is an enlightening and thought-provoking read. Can you tell our listeners a bit about yourself and how you ended up being a prison doctor? Yes, well, I had a bit of a circuitous route to get into prison, but basically I grew up in upstate New York in the Catskill Mountains to parents who uh, were immigrants from Germany. They were not educated, neither one had completed high school, and I, at nine years old, decided to become a doctor, which I think was a surprise to them and it wasn't related to any major medical event. It was actually where I was inspired by reading books about doctors. I was a voracious reader when I was a kid, and I loved reading these books about doctors who took care of people during different periods of history and riled against abuses of power and had romance and intrigue and adventure in their lives, and somehow... When I was nine years old, I thought, that is the type of life I want. 
And uh, I made a decision and I stuck with it. And fortunately for me, I ended up getting a fair amount of scholarships. One of those scholarships was a full ride to medical school. It was the National Health Service Corps Scholarship. And in the United States, if you get that scholarship, you have to work four years afterwards as a payback in a place where the government says, um, this is a health manpower shortage area. We can't get doctors to work there. You work there. And I always thought, well, I'll end up in an indigent clinic or out in the rural area, and that'd be great. When my time was up, they said, okay, we're going to put you in prison, which was a bit of a shock for me. And at that time, Nevada was under a lot of lawsuits and legal problems, and the federal government um, coughed me up to the state of Nevada to do a four-year stint, and that was a payback. That's how I ended up in prison. I never ended up uh, as a kid growing up and think, I need to spend all my time behind bars. That's not what happened. Hmm. So that's how I ended up there. And then for a variety of reasons, I turned it into a career and literally a calling after those four years. And I stayed 30 years. Oh, maybe that was the best way it happened. So now that you went to prison, uh, could you describe your uh, first day on the job? Someone like me. I mean, I grew up very sheltered in the fact that grew up way in the country where I in no way had ever seen a prison or went to prisons. I had no knowledge of felons. I was in one of those schools where I didn't really know addicts or, or anyone. So I had no preconceived idea really of what a prison would be like. And I must say, since I was sort of poor and didn't have money, I hadn't watched even television. Well, I don't <laughs> think that was. Uh, yeah, I don't think television would you have know, given I mean, you the real, uh, the real well, experience well, the real thing, I mean, that you I went had through there. <laughs> like formed that opinion because I, uh, I didn't have a TV or anything, so I didn't really know anything about prisons. And I remember driving up to this. I mean, it's really a very large facility. It's surrounded by um, these double fence lines with barbed wire over the top. And uh, and in Nevada, it sits, you know, in a high desert area. So there's just dirt. You know, there's no tree or grass or anything. It, it really looked foreboding. And then on top of it, it was right next to what's called the minimum security prison camp, where when I walked up to the camp, uh, to the prison itself, I could smell all the cow manure because of, they had cows and you know out there. It was a little odd to have that uh, difference. And when I walked into the prison, it they uh, weren't really expecting me, which uh, was sort of creepy um, because I felt like, how come you don't even know I'm supposed to show up today? And that set the tone for really all sorts of things that happened to me in the prison. They weren't expecting me. They uh, didn't treat me like I would have expected. I, I was very naive. I thought they would like a doctor in the prison. <laughs> you 
And I found that I was entering a world where I was looked at as a, uh, almost like an annoyance and a liability. And there were people in power who felt, well, doctors, you know, inmates don't really deserve care. And I think also because the federal government put me there, they they looked at that as, um, I don't know, sort of like an annoyance. Yeah, and when I entered, yeah, when I entered the facility, uh, all those gates clanging behind me. I mean, I think I let me think. I went through six different gates clanging behind me before I even got to you know some place where someone knew me. <laughs> uh, we might as well get right into it. Here, you you dealt with a lot of inmates. Early in your prison job, you were taken hostage. And uh, raped by a death, ex-death row prisoner you were treating. Your descriptions of the event that led to this horrible act was one thing. But how you stayed so strong and refused to let this prisoner define you was, for me, some of the most powerful writing in your book. Could you describe how you dealt with what happened, both personally and with your husband? Friday the 13th in October of 1989, I was taken hostage by this guy who had been on death row in the past. And... Uh, I was assaulted and raped. Uh, SWAT teams got me out with concussion grenade. And I actually went back to work on Monday. Part of that, people, I think, had no idea, like, why I didn't uh, call in sick or, I don't know, like, never go back to work. And I really think it was because I grew up with German parents who had this mindset, whatever happens, you just fall off the horse, you get back on. If life's tough, you just get tougher. So it never, ever occurred to me um, to be a victim. Uh And the thing is that I was definitely victimized. It definitely affected me physically and mentally and emotionally. But that core part of me was that I'm not going to victimize myself by being afraid of inmates or afraid of men or let this destroy me. That um, definitely was in my brain. But uh, I think people who read my book will realize that part of me didn't even understand how much I was affected by that event. And I must say, writing the book, where I'm writing about the event years and years later, and I talked about it with my husband, and my husband made this comment to me was and said, Karen, you know, you never really asked me how... I felt about it. And it was like someone like punched me in the stomach because he made the point, you don't really get over PTSD until you ask how your actions, you know, affect other people around you. And, And that was, I don't know, that was like a wake up call for me where I realized that, um, looking back at what happened, My husband was very, very supportive, but I was dealing with my own stuff so much, I didn't really, um, I think, reach out to him 
I just assumed he was tough and uh, and uh, sort of accepted it. And uh, I will say that it took me a couple of weeks to actually even tell him that I had been raped. And uh, I think, you know, my husband really knew that that had happened to me in the event, but it took me a couple of weeks to actually tell him. And the most powerful thing I think that helped me heal was that when I got back to the prison on that Monday, and I was still in a bit of shock, and I realized, looking back, that the difference between how the prison acted and how the inmates acted, the prison system, I really felt, uh, dropped the ball. One, they uh, didn't reach out to me. Um, they didn't check on how I was go- doing. Um, they really didn't say anything, uh, which made me feel like part of my brain was, oh, no, maybe they wanted me to die or get my comeuppance. And the inmates were the ones who sent the letters Uh, the cards, every time they saw me, they wanted to make sure I was okay. And the compassion from the inmates compared to what I experienced from the prison institution and let's say the people who run it and my peers was like diametrically opposite. And that very much affected me because, um, it made me really consider how much compassion is needed to help people heal. You know, in medicine, we just take it for granted that you want a compassionate doctor, not someone who just doesn't care. You want a compassionate doctor. And it made me look at the prison and think, wow, the people here, many of them have done bad acts, uh, but so many of them have been damaged themselves. And if you really wanted to help and heal them, then you need to be compassionate. And that just heightened that awareness for me because of what I experienced. And that really formed a lot of the way I handled myself. And the reason I also stayed, um, after those four years, I mean, I stayed another, what, 25 or so to make that 30-year stint. So a lot of them, uh, like you know, will show you a lot more compassion than uh, the prison bureaucracy, which means your peers. If I may, I'll segue to how yeah. many prison doctors end up being either disillusioned by the system or the inmates themselves. Some quit, some become part of the system, and a few here and there believe that all prisoners, regardless of who they are or what they have done, should be treated with compassion and professionalism. I include you in that rare group, and I'm very interested in what kept you fighting the good fight. I will, I will say that you're absolutely correct about people who work in the prison. There are individuals who become disillusioned. They get burnt out. Uh, there's some that definitely leave. And there is a rare group that seems to become not only resilient, but a bit anti-fragile and get stronger. 
and more compassionate inside a prison, and that is a small group. And I've, because I'm curious, yeah, I'm curious by nature. So I've watched different custody officers, different prison directors, you know, 30 years, you have a lot of time to watch. The same with inmates as well, how different circumstances affect people. And what is very obvious is it's everyone's interpretation of the circumstance or what happens to them. And the things that made me, I think, a bit more resilient is, number one, I think people have different mindsets. There are people that I consider sort of in the fixed mindset, and then other people more in the growth mindset. And if you're in the fixed mindset, many people are regimented. uh, They're very, very judgmental. And they're very, what I consider, black and white thinkers. They don't look at the gray. And of course, prisons many times pull those people in because people like the idea of this is good and this is bad and this is what we're going to do and that's it. And I'm more of the growth mindset, which is that I am curious. I want to understand the gray areas. I want to not only grow my for myself, but I definitely believe that people can change and can grow on the average. So I believe in the growth mindset. And when I would look at, and we can take anyone, we can take a murderer or a, a sexual offender. When I looked at the person, I never looked at them as uh oh, this is a pedophile, boom, and that's it. I looked at them as a whole person. Part of it is I'm an internal medicine specialist, so I look at the thing, and I looked at the whole person, and I never defined people just by the worst act they had done in life. I looked at them with curiosity. How come and why and what happened to you that created this sequence of events so you ended up doing a criminal action or an action that society finds objectionable and you end up in a prison. So I've had that curiosity piece. I think that people aren't curious, especially people who just believe one thing and that's it, are dangerous in prisons. I also, yeah, I also believe, and because I believe that, I strongly believe that if you expose people to education in different ways to think and give them role models. I truly believe there are definitely people who can change and improve. And then because I come from the medical perspective, I'm also interested in the brain and neurochemistry and why, you know, people act like they do emotionally. All those things set me up where, let's say, blossomed in a prison versus withered in a prison. And also, I was always looking for the best in people. Unfortunately, you know, uh, and I, I worry about the poor custody officers as a group, because they are, they only, in my state, they have six weeks of training. Uh, They just have to be 21 years old. They So they have limited life experiences, and they're thrown in, 
and they are trained to always look for the worst in people and always be ready for the worst thing that happens. And that day in and day out burns them out or makes them very negative or overreactive. And I know in our country, PTSD and depression and suicide is the highest in custody officers out of most of the professions in the United States. And, you know, when you work in that environment and you work with those people, (laughs) it's not only the poor inmates that uh, can give you the blues, it's that side of the equation as well, you know, as a doctor. You said so many things that are so true, and when I said that you were a rare few, you might be like one or two in the States there, I think like that, because most of them don't. I mean, you really you really went into depth. You really, The way you explained how you, you, you put the medical part together, and you weren't judgmental, but it was really, really, I'm telling you, that was, uh, I'm listening to it, and I'm getting chills, and I read your book, so, uh, you know, <laughs> it, was, it was that was just great. Okay, so your book, you talk a lot about how the American prison system is institutionalized, bureaucracy, and politically driven. Our Canadian prison system yes. suffers from the same misguided mindset. You know, there's not two differences. I think anywhere behind bars where you are, I think you can pretty well say the same thing if you're a prisoner. And I think you can say the same thing if you're, if you're a guard or if you're a doctor like you are. No, so can you tell us how you managed to run a medical service under such a system that works to the detriment of prisoner health? Well, one of the things that, um, of course, occurred in the United States was in 1976 with the Supreme Court decision Estelle versus Gamble, where in the United States, prisons were told, hey, you cannot have deliberate medical indifference to serious medical need. Now, that opened the door where, at least uh, from the legal side, all of a sudden, uh, inmates actually had some power to sue prisons for appropriate medical care. Now, mind you, that's very patchy, but that was also one of the reasons I ended up getting plunked by the federal government in the prison. In my state, Nevada, in the 80s, they had a sort of famous case known as the Taylor-Wolf decision. And this is just to give readers or listeners an idea in that Taylor was a paranoid schizophrenic, Wolf was a warden, and this is before I was there. And they really didn't have medical help or decent psychiatric help. And this paranoid schizophrenic was a bit violent and custody is trying to figure out how to deal with this when they don't really have that ability. And their solution was to shoot him with buckshot and tie him down, four-point him, you know, to a metal bed until he would tire himself out. And then they would let him up. And then he'd do the same thing again. Then they shoot him with buckshot. And this went on for a very long time. And it was actually an inmate who ended up bringing a suit against uh, the state that uh, brought some attention to Nevada for not giving appropriate care to the mentally ill. And with other lawsuits, that's how I got plunked in there. So I think that one, um, one of the reasons I was able to do medical care was because of the, the lawsuits. Now, I personally, as a doctor, 
absolutely am annoyed in hate when I get sued. <laughs> I can tell you that. <laughs> I can understand that. <laughs> uh, but right, but I understand I understand many times the the inmate is suing me and they're suing me more for these civil rights issues regarding Dr. Gedney, I'm in pain. I got back pain and I want narcotics and narcotics and narcotics, you know. Or right now in the United States, some of the biggest lawsuits, and this is a real problem for states in our country, is what to do with hepatitis C. Mm. Um, the inmates are suing for treatment because the drug companies are very much pushing their drugs, and those drugs are ungodly expensive for states and prison systems. And unfortunately, depending on the state, I would say in Nevada, about one out of four of all the inmates in the state probably have hepatitis C based on some little studies we did. And even in a small state, I mean, small population-based state like Nevada, um, I had about 4,000 hepatitis C patients. And when I was there, when the hep C drugs were, you know, just starting out and being ungodly expensive, yeah. that could have been 80 to 100,000 for one inmate. Now, you have 4,000 guys who all want hep C treatment, and you're looking at 100 grand a piece, uh, and you don't know really who will most benefit from it or not benefit from it. And if they had the treatment, they can just go out and shoot up and get infected again, and they're right back to where they started. You can see why, from a financial standpoint, from the state, that's like crazy and untenable. That's a problem. No, I was just going to say that, you know, when you talk about asking me about, well, how could you do all this medical stuff inside of a prison? It's lawsuits that allowed doctors to push, let's say, some things. But also, one has to realize the dilemmas, states and budgets and who's pulling which strings and why those lawsuits occur. It's the same thing up here, basically, you know, even at the federal level here, uh, they get a budget and they pretty well try to keep to it. So uh, they come up with all these rules. OK, you got to be this sick to get that. If you're too sick, you can't have that. So I understand where you're coming from on that. So, uh, Dr. Gedney, you have treated thousands of prisoners over 30 years. Uh, but be neither That's a prisoner, sure. yeah. But be neither, <laughs> neither a prisoner nor a guard. You're in a unique position to observe prisoner life at a level any sane prison would pray to God not to be in. That life journey obviously had a huge impact on who you are now as a human being. Prison is dehumanizing. We all know that. How can we raise citizen awareness that prisoners are also human beings and address the atrocities of the prison industrial complex? Well. One of the things I decided when I retired from the prison is when I left, I think like a lot of people who leave a long career, they're in that position of like, okay, what do I really want to do in my next act in life? And I always felt, let's say, tied to wanting to help 
the inmate population because I look at them as underdogs because I was a sort of an underdog myself for, for different reasons. And when I left, I thought the greatest way I could actually make the public understand some of the things I had learned after 30 years was to tell the story, and especially my personal story. Because in the outside world, I think the world has experienced stories from the inmates, the stories from the custody or the law enforcement side. And I realized, wow, very, very rarely do you ever hear it from the side and through the eyes of a medical person caught between those two worlds and someone who's really oriented to problem solve and heal uh, and be compassionate. And when I thought about pulling together all my ideas and stories and thoughts, I um, Googled, you know, whether (laughs) people had ever really written, you know, Box had written books about prisons. And I realized there had really been no female prison doc that I could find that had ever wrote a book about the prison system you know, in the United States. And there's like two books I found that males had written. And these were guys who had done their careers in the outside world and they were retired and bored and went into the prison and did some work and, you know, wrote two books, I mean, wrote a book or two about their experiences. But they didn't grow up in the prison like I did. And also they don't see it uh, either as a female as well. Because there's, a, I think, a very big difference between having a female doc in a, pe- in a male prison versus a male physician in a male prison. Oh, a big difference. Um, yeah, there's, a, there's different dynamics because the men who were my patients, they were far less defensive. Yeah, you know, you know you're right. Like, uh, I can see how most men, you know, if there was a, a, a female doctor... I think they're they're a bit a bit of a better behavior, uh, you know. For, yes, that's you know, also <laughs> that's, it's an interesting con. Well, it's an interesting convict code, where <laughs> if they want something out of you, they will try to sweet talk you first, versus immediately jump and scream and pound yeah. their fists like they will with a male. Well, I think they would try the first one with the male, too, and then they'd probably go faster to the fist pound. Yeah, you'll go faster. <laughs> yeah, I guess. That's how it depends on the guys. But, yeah, but well, it, it, was, it, it was a different tactic. You know, I never heard of any any female doctor in a male prison before, and somebody who did as much, did 30 years, I, I almost said did as much time, <laughs> because you're right. almost like a prisoner right. in a way. You did a 30-year sentence there. But, you know, uh, it, it, yeah, it's really unique. It really is. And that bleeds me to your post-career. You know, your post-prison career seems to be just as busy right. and challenging. I find it inspiring that you continue to advocate for changes to prisons and how we treat prisoners. Tell us what you do now. As Wendy, any, any last words on whatever you would like to get out to our listeners? Yes. What I'm doing now is I am uh, promoting my book. I'm doing speaking engagements. I do consulting. I also sit on the board 
for um, transitional housing for uh, ex-felons and drug addicts in Reno, Nevada. And that transitional housing is the Ridge House and has been in existence for 36 years. I also, um, let's say, go out of my way to uh, support and help ex-felons who are have really turned around their lives. For example, there is going to be, oh, in December, down in Las Vegas, um, a creative writing group in my prison system that did poetry and journal publications in something called Razor Wire. They're going, Nevada Humanities for a month is going to have an art gallery and all that stuff down in Las Vegas. And I will go down and... Um, you know, help support that as well. I feel also highly, very, very strongly that prevention is incredibly important. And that's why my husband and I mentor kids at risk, you know, kids that have, you know, fathers basically that have been in prison systems or they're in prison systems. And we do that through the Big Brother, Big Sister organization. And in fact, next week, I'll be a speaker for sort of the annual fundraiser for Big Brother Big Sister organization in Reno, Nevada. And my point is to the audience that they can be part of the solution if they help kids at risk so they don't end up in prison. And I'm approaching it like the medical model. For me, it's I'm going to work on the prevention end. I'm going to work on the healing part inside the prison, which is bringing you know awareness from the public in, inside, and on the reentry side, and that's why I sit in the Ridge House. So to me, it's that medical approach, prevent, heal, and support. Well, you know that there is, is so true. The rehabilitation anywhere in North America, you can say in the States or in Canada, the mindset is the same thing. Yeah, the majority of people, it's punishment. Somebody does something wrong, that's it. Put them in jail, lock them up, throw away the key. But it's the rehabilitation and also the prevention, like you said. And just to go back one second here, uh, man, I don't know if you actually, I think you might have wanted to go back to your job in the prison. You're doing more outside than you're doing inside. And also, <laughs> <laughs> I remember when I, was, when I read the book, and I, I can sh- I'll prove it right now, because your husband, he went in you, to yeah. do multiple programs, so you both were doing, working yeah, to, to help better inmates. Into the prison. And it's, re- it's really good that you both were on the same track, because I don't know how, how that marriage would have went otherwise. Big things for me, one of the big things for me in terms of surviving and doing well in the prison was absolutely my husband's support and understanding. And also that when I dragged him into the prison, he was able to see it for himself, which is very different than just hearing about it from someone else. Because my husband truly, my husband had grown, my, my husband's a black man, and here I am a white, tall, blonde. So that, that, of course, is an interesting dynamic in the area we live in because there are no blacks in my area, mm-hmm. except in the prison. You see what I mean? Yes. So you have this racial, so I also had the racial thing going on as well. But my husband initially believed, oh, lock him up and throw away the key. And that's because he had grown up in an educated, privileged world. But when he experienced the inside of the prison teaching, it 
made him realize that he was only just lucky, you know, in terms of his environment, and that uh, under different circumstances, who knows where he would have ended up. Well, you know, you changed his view, and I'm sure you, through your public speaking and your memoir, I am sure, plus uh, that halfway house and all that there, that's, that's really good stuff. I'm so impressed with what you do post not just your prison career, which is impressive, but what you're doing post-career. And you changed your husband, like I said, and I'm sure you changed a lot of listeners. If you can describe something as well as you describe it. If everybody keeps talking, I think we can eventually affect the change that we want. And this has been a really, really great interview, Dr. Gedney. And I'm going to be so happy to put this on air. Uh, thank you very much. And I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to explain my survival tactics in prison (laughs) and also how I look at the system in general because I do want to help heal it. And it will not only affect the inmates, it will truly make society safer. You know, there's so much I could ask more. I'd love to, one of these days, get back to you and maybe talk about something else if you would ever uh, be so kind as to let me do that because you are a fountain of knowledge, you know, like, uh, and compassion and feeling, you know, it's really, really, really good. So hopefully we can uh, talk again about something in the future. Absolutely. I would do that in a heartbeat. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Thanks, Dr. Gedney. That was an interview with Dr. Karen Gedney, an internal medicine specialist who spent almost 30 years treating prisoners as a prison physician. Dr. Gedney is the author of the recently published book about her experience called 30 Years Behind Bars, Trials of a Prison Doctor. We're getting really close to the end of our show. Thanks for tuning in. Check out past episodes of the Prison Radio Show at prisonradioshow.wordpress.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at prisonradio show whose data our data when you're not paying for a product you are the product especially in web and email services where multinationals compete to manage your communication so they can make a profit off of the private communication you are producing kumbit is a worker cooperative trying to help small organizations or individuals get their email website creation and website hosting services off corporate services such as google For more information, contact us at kumbit.org or email at info at kumbit.org. That's K-O-U-M-B-I-T. We are not on Facebook. All of CKUT's members are invited to attend our annual general meeting on Thursday, November 29th, 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. at Brown Student Services Building, 3600 McTavish, room 5001. Go to the link on our website for all details on committee elections, how to submit member motions, and more. P.S. CKT is actively looking for volunteers to sit on its programming committee, a committee that oversees all of our on-air content. That's it? You're happy? Uh-huh. Okay.
to clamp down with your iron fist. Strides became conveniently available for all the kids. Following the right movement to clamp down with your iron fist. Strides became conveniently available for all the kids. Change of mind. 
a collective effort needs to be made to put prisons out of business, at least for the communities who are severely suffering injustices and oppression. Oppression is not making excuses for criminal conduct, but oppression is a, is a group of systems in place to maintain a community of people who have no power or wealth. It is these communities that must watch their young men and women being gunned down by other young men in police. This form of extermination is playing its way across every city and town in America. Is this some type of accident? No. It is part of the natural reactions to human beings not having their basic needs met. Thirdly, the persons who will solve the conduct that brings men and women in prison can be cured by only the felons themselves. Nobody in government wants to lose their jobs because citizens are not committing crimes. There is no solution to the crime disease within the nation's systems. The system operates to control felons. The healing is within us as a collective body of people who have been removed from the society. We have lost our political, economical, and social rights in America. We could never hold political office or other meaningful positions in society. We are outcasts. If felons voted, we could determine any election in the nation. But even with the right to vote, we don't. We don't demand anything from the ruling political party. We are afraid to speak with President Trump about giving some ideas and reducing prison population for the elderly, the sick, and those who have been in prison over 20 years. We are afraid to rise up out of our prison mental illnesses and take our place in the society. The solution lies with us. When will a man or woman be produced to galvanize this unused human potential? Soon, I hope, the silence of our souls and heart comes alive. Thank you. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. Linking movements and daring to be free by Kerry Shakabuna Marshall. What does the Black Lives Matter, immigration movement, J20 protesters, poor people's campaign, and Occupy movement have in common? Their commonality is that the government's police enforcers has arrested and incarcerated their members in an attempt to break their movement, the people's movement. For people who are exercising their human rights of engaging the government to transform the U.S. political power structure and change the material conditions in our community, the government has incarceration looming over their heads like a gloomy cloud constantly threatening their freedom. In such times of racial justice struggles and social movement upheavals in America, the government has always thrown away the pretense of law enforcement in favor of straight-up naked oppression and class warfare, a la worker strikes breaks, Kent State University student killings, Black Panthers, Occupy Wall Street, and hashtag Black Lives Matter. Such are the times when people who are blind to the ways of a Machiavellian government can clearly see that the police, the courts, and the prisons act to serve and preserve the interests of the powerful American business elites they seek to defend, and not the rule of law or public safety of the people. 
since incarceration is a real possibility for people involved in direct action within social justice movements, you would think that they would build coalitions with groups within the human rights prisoners movement. And for the same reason, you would think that the groups within the human rights prison movement would seek to build coalitions with groups within the social justice movement. Though this hasn't fully happened yet, the seeds of change have yet been sown. And we are seeing alliances between movements germinating in small pockets throughout the country. The common people and people who are engaged in social justice struggles are now coming to understand a number of things. The government will seek to destroy all movement for social change advanced by the people by arresting its problems away. The cops, courts, and prisons don't serve the interests of the poor people in, their, in no way, shape, or form and are there to oppress the working poor citizens of America. Mass incarceration is the U.S. government's criminalizing of and social control over black, Latino, immigrants, and Muslim people specifically, and over the poor people in America generally. The various social justice movements and human rights prisoners movement must establish alliances and coalitions with each other to form a single mass movement to overcome the agents of oppression and to bring about much-needed total social transformation of America. Come and join the human rights struggle in America. From the belly of the beast at Prison Radio, I am Shaka Boone. Thank you for listening. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. The time is 11.55 a.m. and you've been listening to The Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM, 91.7 on cable, and www.ckut.ca. What you last heard was, of course, Prison Song by System of a Down off their album Toxicity, followed by some commentary from Prison Radio in the U.S. We had a piece from Charles Diggs, and what you were just listening to was a piece by Carrie Shakabuna Marshall. The Prison Radio Show airs twice a month on CKUT. We're on the air on the second Thursday of the month at 5 p.m. and the fourth Friday at 11 a.m. The next episode of Prison Radio Show will air on Thursday, December 13th at 5 p.m. If you have any questions on anything that you've heard on today's show or you wish to be involved with the show, feel free to contact us at prison at ckut.ca. Formerly incarcerated people are encouraged to participate. You can also leave a message on our listener comment line at 514 514- 448-4041, extension 2547. If you're in prison, we encourage you to participate in any way possible. You can write us at The Prison Radio Show, or simply write PRS, care of CKUT, 3647 University Street, postal, uh, Montreal, Quebec, postal code H3A2B3. Thank you for tuning into The Prison Radio Show here on CKUT. Don't change the dial. Butcher T's Noontime Cuts is coming up next.
Yes, rehabilitation. I wonder if you know what the word means. Do you? It comes from the Latin root habilis. The definition is to invest again with dignity. You consider that part of your job, Harvey, to give a man back the dignity he once had? Your only interest is in how he behaves. You'll conform to our ideas of how you should behave. I am not a number. I am a free man. You were a number. You weren't a man. You wanted to be a human. I wasn't Jim Crow. And hell, I was number 586. Why do you do a warder's job? It's a good job. Responsible job. Uh, officers like myself trying to... Scum. We're only enforcing the law. Oh, the law. The law. When they hang my husband, is that just? Yo, check one, two, this is Flavor Flavor Public Enemy, and you're listening to CKUT and the place to be from the bottom to the T.O.P. Time cuts hitting every Friday from noon to two, playing your wide variety of music just to make your afternoon delight just right. So stay locked into CKT 90.3 FM. Be free. 